Gather round, take a seat, relax. It's the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Afton, right here on 101.9 High FM. This is 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Afton from Linksfield Shul, and we are so excited to have you here on this show today. What I want to do today is I want to start off with a fascinating piece of archaeology. I know you didn't necessarily sign up for, for bringing an archaeology, but it's good to diversify our focus. And now I'd like to um, want to focus a bit on the incredible archaeological discovery. I'm not sure if it was explored on the FM network. Um, definitely worth looking at, and as you'll see in a moment, it literally changes everything from an archaeological perspective. So I'm going to start with a premise, and the premise is the following, that being a rabbi, being a religious person, I accept the words of the Torah, I accept the words of the Bible um, as not only divinely inspired and holy, but also historically true. So, for example, as we get closer to Pesach, two weeks, two and a half weeks away from Pesach, I read the story in the Torah, and I read it not only as a nice tale, but as actually the story of our history. Now, one of the issues that people who didn't necessarily come from this bend, this prism of reality, one of the arguments they've always had on people who take the Torah as literal history, one of their arguments was, one second, that doesn't make any sense because nothing has been proven historically. Nothing has been proven from the Torah archaeologically. And... Therefore, if it hasn't been proven, then really does it exist? So whether it's a story of the crossing of the Nile, where people are saying, okay, so where are all the items that were went under the sea? Or the ten plagues, or the Jewish people sojourned 40 years in the desert. Where is it all? Prove it to me, show it to me. I, I'm not buying it. Right? So... You might say, fair point. And therefore, for a long time, people had to approach this, the the literal reading of the Torah text, as an act of faith. But then came last week. Last week um, in Texas, this fellow named Dr. Scott Stripling uncovered uh, to the world, shared with the world something fascinating. He says like this, and I'm going to read this, I'm reading this out of time of Israel, but you can read the same in J-Post and other uh, media outlets. Archaeologist Dr. Scott Stripling and a team of international scholars held a press conference Thursday, in Houston, Texas, unveiling what he claims is the earliest proto-alphabetic Hebrew text, 
including the four-letter name of God. The Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. So it's the most ancient proto-alphabetic. In other words, it's a different handwriting than the way we write the alphabet today, but it's, it was the way much was written in those times. But it's the most ancient ever discovered in Israel. And it was found on a mountain that scripture describes, Mount Ava. So let me just unpack this for you. According to the Torah, the five books of Moses, they were authored at the end of Moshe's life. Moshe passed away approximately somewhere between 1200 and 1300 BCE. And at that time when Moshe passes away, he hands the Jewish people the five books of Moses. They're called the five books of Moses. Obviously, um, divinely inspired, God told him what to write, but it was written down into text as by Moses. It's actually one of the um, mistakes often people say that, like, who wrote the Torah? That God gave the five books of Moses, handed it to him at Sinai in written form. No, he, God taught him everything that's there, but it wasn't in written form. Uh, Moshe put it down into paper, now write it down. So Moshe hands the Torah over to the Jewish people and then passes away. In Jewish dating, he passed away in the year 2448 from creation, 2488 from creation, apologies, on the 7th of Adar. Exactly a month later, which is approximately around the time that we're in, because right now we are towards the end of the month of Adar before Nisan, so we're literally in that period where over 3,000 years ago, during the Shloshim, during the month period after Moshe's passing, the Jewish people stayed in the desert commemorating his passing and, you know, celebrating, commemorating the Shloshim, 30-day mourning period. And then immediately after the 30-day mourning period, which was on the 7th of Nisan, Joshua, Moshe's inheritor, sends spies to Israel to check out how the Jews can cross over. And three days later, on the 10th of Nisan, the Jewish people crossed into the Holy Land. Now, that whole story of Joshua is not found in the Chumash. It's not found in the five books of Moshe. That's found in the book of Joshua, which is the first of the many other books of the Tanakh, of the Holy Scripture, of the canon. The book of Joshua describes what happens in Yeshua's lifetime, and then it moves on to the book of Judges, and the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, etc., which all unpack that era in Jewish history, which was pretty much about a 900-year period from when the Israelites moved into Israel to when they were expelled from Israel by the Babylonians. And then the, the later books in the Tanakh also describe the return 70 years later after being exiled, they returned, they rebuilt the second temple, and it's at that era, the beginning of the second temple era, that really the Tanakh comes to a close. Um, any history or script or text that was written after that is not part of the Tanakh, it's not part of the canon. Okay. So, before Moshe died, as I said, he wrote the Torah. One of the things he did before handing over the Torah to the Jewish people is, in the Parsha of... Kitavo, which is one of the last texts in the Chumash. Moshe calls the Jewish people 
Um, this is in the book of Tvarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 27, verse 12. And he tells the Jewish people that when you arrive in Israel, I won't be with you, but when you arrive in Israel, I want you to stand on two mountains, which are just past the Jordan River. In other words, when they're going to cross over the Jordan, because the Jewish people, when they came into Israel, they came in westward. They were on the east bank of the river, then they went to the west bank of the river. So when you come over to that west side of the bank, there's two mountains, Mount Grizim and Mount Eval. And what you're going to do is six tribes are going to stand on one mountain, Mount Grizim, and six tribes are going to stand on Mount, stand on Mount Eval. The six tribes on mountain one will be saying blessings. Blesses the person who does the following. And the curses will be on the other side. The curses, just to give you an example, it's someone who cursed to someone who curses their own parents or beats them, degrades them. Someone who moves the boundary of their fellow. In other words, you just move the boundary wall of your fellow and you just take away property that's them. Um, incest and other bestiality, etc. Um, taking bribery, various things. And the opposite is blessed are the people who will do the right thing and stay away from all the things that we just spoke about and focus on positivity. So, not too long after, as I said earlier, Moshe passed away. And here he traveled, he gets buried on that side. And the Jewish people, as I said, a month later, travel into Israel. One of the first things they do after they arrive, you read this in the book of Joshua, chapter 8, they go to the two mountains and they give the ceremony of the blessings and the curses. So before we go cut to the break, I just think it's important to understand because we're going to continue this exploration after the, the song. So the era we're talking about is literally at the time, it's a few days after the five books of Moshe were written down and handed to the Jewish people, and then the Jewish people travel into Israel. It's all literally within a few week period that they end up in Israel and stand on Mount Eval and Mount Grizim, and they say the blessings and curses. So what did they discover last week about this specific event that suddenly puts not only a faith-based um, perspective on the stories of the Tanakh, but an archaeological-based fact, historical fact of what happened, and suddenly takes reading the text of the Torah from an act of faith to history. Well, let's explore that after this beautiful melody, one of my favorite melodies, from A.B. Rottenberg, Neshamala. Dear soul, the journey of the soul onto this world. Just a beautiful melody. This is 101.9 Chai FM, and we'll be back right after this. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 Chai FM. This is 101.9 Chai FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Avtson of Leaksfield Shul. If you're just tuning in now, um, at the beginning of the show, we kind of start talking about um, archaeology but really the history of the Jewish people at the time that they arrived into Israel with Joshua. And just before Moshe passed away, who was the teacher of Joshua, he tells the Jewish people that when they come into Israel, they should stand on two mountains, both of them that are today um, next to Nablus, Shechem, 
And on Mount Grizim, they'll say blessings. On Mount Evil, they will say curses, the opposite of blessings. Now, the book of Joshua says that they went in and actually did so. But as I mentioned earlier, one of the big arguments that people had against the validity of seeing the Torah as a true history is that it's impossible that the Bible was written by people at the time that we of the stories. Their argument was, it was called Bible criticism, it arose in the 1800s, and Bible criticism basically came and say that in their hypothesis, the Torah was written three to six hundred years after um, we claim it was written. And one of the big proofs was because we have no archaeological proof that the Jewish people knew how to read or write at the time that we claim the Chumash was written and many of the books of the Tanakh. There was no writing from that period. The most ancient Hebrew writing that was ever discovered up to this was from 10th century BCE, which is 300 years plus minus after the book, the Chumash story ends. So the argument went, it could not have been written by Moshe or anybody in his time because there's no proof that anybody knew how to write. So it was written 300 years later and therefore it was more of a fictional history a hodgepodge of various things that people believed happen. And therefore, based on that, when the second a religious person comes and says, well, this Torah is a history, the, person, the other person would say, ah, give me a break. Nonsense. It's just a nice tale. But what happens when you have proof, not only that a story in the Tanakh took place, but you have proof from the very era that we that the Torah says something happened. You have literally proof of an event happening of that era with Hebrew writing. This is why some people call this a text that you find only every thousand years. It still has to be peer reviewed, but once this literally becomes scientific fact, um, which I'm pretty confident it will. It's a groundswell because suddenly the the Bible criticism's out the window. Right? Because what did they found? They found a folded lead, something made out of lead, two centimeters by two centimeters. So it's not big. And in the words of Time of Israel, it may be one of the greatest archaeological discoveries ever. Why? It would be the first attested use of the name of God in the land of Israel and would set the clock back on proven Israeli, Israelite literacy by several centuries, showing that the Israelites were literate when they entered the Holy Land and therefore could have written the Bible as some of the events it documents took place. So basically they found on the mountain that we claim, that the Torah claims, the Jewish people stood and made curses, they found this piece of lead with various words about curses, etc., and God's name written in lead. 
obviously it wasn't, you know, what the people read the curses out. It seems to have been like a little note that somebody prepared for themselves some, that they wanted to remember um, what happened at this event. See, he writes uh, the, the word curse actually is a lot in the um, in the text and the word of God, etc. Um, and it's a pretty hectic text. It's not the prettiest text I've ever been found, but it does describe the fact that a ceremony of blessings and curses took place at that time. Now, this document, this piece of lead has been traced to somewhere between the 12th and 13th, 14th century BCE, which is the era that we say that, that the, the Jewish people arrived in Israel. So literally, this was written by somebody who had just come from the desert. Chances are lived through the Exodus, because the Exodus was only 40 years before that. Or if not, he didn't live through the Exodus. Um, his parents did, and everyone, and his mother and, his, and many other people he knew lived. They said it was male writing, so that's why I'm saying he. And you suddenly have proof that at the time that the, we claim the Tanakh was written, people wrote Hebrew. That an event that, we, that the Torah says took place on Mount Aval, this piece of lead was found on Mount Aval. And it was found by an altar. Now, th this altar, for a long time, already since the 80s, the person who discovered it claimed that the altar was the altar that Joshua built on that mountain. People took him, you know, as a joke because, okay, you're claiming a bunch of stones are that old. And they didn't take it seriously, but suddenly they found the writing and suddenly the whole, everything that was discovered on that mountain is being given a new look. In, you know, to the, in the words of Yediyat Achronot, this is a earthquake in the research of the Bible. Because, again, suddenly the archaeology shows that the Tanakh, which we claim was written in the Hebrew tongue, at that era, we have proof that the Israelites wrote, had literacy at that era, and proof of an event in the actual Chumash that it actually took place. And suddenly when somebody says, yeah, but how could the Tanakh be valid? It wasn't written by contemporaries. It was written by later. Until now, you just have to say one second, but based on, based on faith and based on tradition, it took place. Suddenly, you also have the argument from a science. And again, for me personally, can I say that it's made me any more secure in my belief of the story? No. Um, I never doubted. Because, you know, what is archaeology? It's, it's a journey of discovery. And just because you haven't discovered something yet doesn't mean that you'll never discover it. So this is a perfect example. Until now, they only discovered Hebrew writing from the 10th century before Common Era. So that proves that there was no Hebrew writing 12th or 13th century before Common Era. Really? Why? You just haven't discovered it yet. <laughs> and that, that's like the, the big issue that I really hope this story, and that's why like, I felt it's so important to share today, but what, what this story, it, it's a perfect reminder of how the Torah, the Bible, religion, and science are not contradictions. Science is just a discovery within this world to discover um, the reality that God created. And it's a constant journey, it's a constant discovery. 
And just because you haven't discovered something to confirm the Bible doesn't make the, the Torah wrong. It just means you haven't confirmed it from a scientific point of view. Fine. So you haven't. But the problem often with people who take science and start turning science into the parameter of truth, where suddenly if, if science has not proven it yet, then it's false. No, it's just hasn't been proven scientifically. I'll give you another great example. Up until 100 years ago, it was considered um, common sense in the non-religious community, in the scientific, rather in the scientific community, that the world had no beginning. Now, this was a great narrative. Why? Because if the world never had a beginning, then you don't have to ask the question how the world came into existence. Who, or any, if anything, came to, brought the world into existence? How the world manifests the way today? No, because the world has been here forever. But then what happened? They discovered the Big Bang. And the irony is often people say, gosh, Rabbi, the Big Bang, it's such a contradiction to religion. No, it's not. It's actually one of the greatest things that happened to prove um, the religious narrative. Why? Because what did the Big Bang fundamentally share? That the world had a beginning. That was not the narrative. Most serious scientists up to literally a few decades ago consider the fact that the world had no beginnings. They didn't have to question all these questions about what happened at the beginning. But suddenly you have... Now it's pretty much scientific, uh, you know, fact that the world had a beginning. There was a moment when the world came into creation, and before that there was no universe. And suddenly the first words of the Torah come true. Breshit Baralokim, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. Fine, maybe some people will say it wasn't God that put that thing in motion. But you have to agree that there was a before and an after. And that something happened that brought the world into existence. Science still doesn't have an answer how that Big Bang happened. It still does not come and say that the, those th particles that exploded and led to the Big Bang, where did they come from? There is no answers. There's no answers how that how the creation of material of, of, of matter and energy ever manifested into consciousness. There's a lot of questions that are still left unanswered by science, because, again, science is a journey. It's a discovery. The Torah is coming and telling you from God's perspective, this is what happened. Science as it goes in the journey, will just confirm more and more and more. In the last 50 years, the amount of biblical archaeology, whether it, not so much from the period of Chumash, that's why this, this discovery is so monumental, but from later on in the Tanakh, King David times, King Solomon times, King Chizkiah's times, Isaiah, etc., later on in the biblical period, so much has been discovered to confirm the narrative, not to negate it. So until you don't discover it from a scientific view and makes it false, no. And that's why, you know, Rabbi Sachs wrote in his incredible book, The Great Partnership, they're not contradictions, science and religion. They're just two sides of the same coin. Science is coming and discovering the reality from bottom up, looking into the universe, looking into history and trying to make sense of it. And the Torah, on the other hand, is God's narrative coming and saying, this is what happened. And more and more we're going to see the two merge because they're the same truth. They're both God. God created this world. What is science discovering? Science is discovering this universe. Who created the universe? God. It's not a contradiction. 
But unfortunately for many, until science comes and says this is proven, people will say, well, I can't take religion as face value. So that's why for many people who maybe struggled with taking the biblical narrative of faith alone, I hope what they do is they, they, they come with an open mind and suddenly they say, one second, okay. So now it's 100% historically valid to say that the, the Chumash was written by Moshe at the time just before the Jewish people enter the Holy Land, etc. So suddenly this book is not just a nice history that people made up a few hundred years later, but it's actually the word of God transmitted to Moshe in the time to the generation of the people who witnessed Sinai, who witnessed the crossing of the sea, who witnessed the crossing of the Jordan into the Holy Land. Wow, let me look at this book from a, a different perspective and, and not from a place of doubt, but a place of, okay, this is truth. Let me unpack it. That would be incredibly courageous for somebody to do so because there's no question that this research, this discovery will get incredible opposition because it, it's, it slaps in the face of a, a very convenient narrative that the Bible wasn't true, that the Torah is not true, that the Torah wasn't authored by Moshe. And suddenly when it, you have a discovery that proves it did, it could have happened, it did happen, it will get opposition. But the truth is, our confidence in the validity of the Torah was never because of an archaeological discovery. It's because the Torah says it, and that's what it is. Moshe emet v'Torah Torah emet. Moshe is true, and the Torah is true. But at the same time, it's amazing to see when the other point of view, when science comes and says the exact same narrative that we always need to be true. And that's why I felt it was so important to share this today because it truly is a monumental moment in the merging of the two where suddenly we realize once again that Torah isn't religious and science isn't secular they're both godliness this is 101.9 Chai FM this is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9 Chai FM this is 101.9 Chai FM. And we've been talking about an incredible archaeological discovery that offers a strong basis to show that the Torah narrative is not only faith-based, but it's actually um, can be proven historically. And that opens up, a per for somebody who comes with an open mind, it allows them to look at the Torah with a whole new view. For somebody who struggled with the validity of the book, it's only say one second, let me give this a second look. Because it's a very convenient narrative to say that the Torah is just, yeah, it's hypothesis. But suddenly when you could prove that it's r real for that individual, then you have to look at the, a person has to have an open mind and say one second, let me get to check this out. Let me see this with an open mind. Let me trust this. And I, I want to sit for a few moments on this idea of having an open mind. You know, there's a lot of people out there who claim they're open-minded. Gosh, I've heard many people sit across me and tell me that they're open-minded. And often what the, the implication of what they're saying is, you, Rabbi, you're religious, you're not open-minded, you're closed-minded, and I'm open-minded. But here's the funny thing I found almost every time. The second you start challenging the other individual on their beliefs, you start throwing proofs, you start throwing questions, they get very emotional and defensive. 
And I often ask them, I say, one second, you're the open-minded one. Why are you so threatened by my ideas? I'm not threatened by yours. I'm not going to turn red in the face when you tell me you think that God doesn't exist or that you believe the Torah is not true. I'm like, That's not threatening. Fine. You're, you know, believe what you want. Um, but I'm confident in my knowledge. Why are you so threatened by my knowledge? And what I've come to believe is that the more confident you are in your own narrative, the more open-minded you actually are. Having a narrative doesn't make you close-minded. It makes you open-minded. Why? Because you're so confident in the narrative. I want to give you an analogy. If, if I'm being pulled, let's say you know someone ties a rope to me and pulls me. Now, if I'm not firm on my ground, if, I, if, if I'm not holding on to something tight, then wherever they pull me, I'll go flying with them. If I have strength, you know, my core is okay and I'm holding on to something, they could pull and pull, unless they pull impossibly hard, they won't move me. And it won't be the, the worst experience. In other words, the more confident you are in your spot, the more you're comfortable to be pulled in other areas because you're never going to move. Your core is so strong that you'll explore, but it's not going to shake your foundation. But if your foundation is weak, then every time somebody pulls you, you go flying around, of course you'll feel threatened. So I ask you, you know, I'm talking into the radio. One of the things talking to radio, I have no idea who I'm talking to. But I'm imagining that one of my listeners is somebody who maybe did not take the, the biblical narrative as authentic till now. And I encourage you, go Google. Go Google the discovery on Mount Ebal, E-B-A-L, um, the lead, the, 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 the curse, um, what are they calling it? The, the curse tablet um, found on Mount Ebal. Go Google, read, do the research. If you want to wait until it's peer-reviewed, Mazel Tov, do that as well. But then at some stage, sit with an open mind and actually say, one second, if the Torah is true, am, how am I threatened by that? Does it make me feel very unsettled? Is it inducing guilt? Which not, it shouldn't, but is it? Why is it making me uncomfortable? If it doesn't make you uncomfortable, then God bless you, then you're really open-minded. But if it is making you uncomfortable, ask why. Because if you really know your narrative, and it's based on sound research and sound thought, don't, don't be threatened by it. Explore it. And if it counters your thing, you have to go, then go put your own views under a microscope and see, is it true? Challenge yourself to think with a broad, open mind. Because here is one of the biggest ironies. Religion doesn't make you close-minded. Religion that's, not religion that's done by rot, but religion that's done through, through thought. Somebody who actually, you know, thinks it through and that develops a worldview that turns them towards religion, it actually makes them more open-minded because suddenly they're not threatened by other ideas. It's they're enriched. They're not scared of new ideas. When somebody brings up a big idea on your dinner table, does your face turn red? Do you react emotionally? You know what that says about you? What does it say about your ideas? Only if you're threatened would you blow up. If you're comfortable, then you'll listen. 
each and every one of us at some stage in our life has to put some of our ideas under a microscope because nobody has all their ideas right. Religious or not, we all have certain ideas that didn't come through into our minds in a healthy way, whether through trauma, whether through bad education, whether through just bad thought processes. And it's, it's a gift to be able to once in a while think through our ideas and say, one second, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. And maybe I can actually come with a fresh mind, fresh ideas, fresh perspectives. This is 101.9, Chai FM. This is the Fabringen with Rabbi Levi Avtson on 101.9, Chai FM. This is 101.9, Chai FM. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a different kind of show than usual. Different doesn't mean better or worse, just different. I'd love to get your feedback, 34519. Um, Rabbi Aftson at linkshow.co.za feel free to reach out if you have any comments and in general if you want to ever give feedback about the show what you like what you don't like what you would like to hear what ideas you'd like to explore feel free to contact me at Rabbi Aftson at linkshow.co.za Aftson is spelled A-V-T-Z-O-N so I want to wrap up with a beautiful song it's an old song um, but it was recently re-recorded Kansipar, um, one of the mitzvahs of the Torah about sending the mother bird away. Just a beautiful melody sung by the eight Suffren brothers. Um, uh, just a beautiful, nice Jewish me- melody that I hope will end off the show on a good, beautiful, positive note. Wishing you a Chodesh Tov, a good month for the, the new month of miracles, the month of Nisan that starts this Shabbat. Please, God, see you next week, same time. Not necessarily same place. Um, wherever this radio show finds you, have a great day. Have a great week. <laughs>